humans have for the longest time wanted to get rid of the things that we don't like, <laughs> which includes mosquitoes, because mosquitoes uh, vector many illnesses that are, you know, fatal to humans like malaria um, or, you know, otherwise, you know, deleterious, dengue or what have you. Uh, dragonflies and damselflies do a great job at eating mosquitoes. So people have wondered, oh, could we use these as kind of a natural biological control? You know, release dragonflies and damselflies in water, um, have them eat all of the mosquitoes, and we'd have bingo bongo. That would be done. <laughs> Solved. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Jessica Ware, an associate curator in invertebrate zoology at the American Museum of Natural History. Her research focuses on the evolution of behavioral and physiological adaptations in insects, with an emphasis on how these occur in dragonflies, damselflies, termites, cockroaches, and mantises. She is the current president of the Worldwide Dragonfly Association, serves as vice president of the Entomological Society of America, and she was recently awarded a PCASE medal from the U.S. government for her work on insect evolution. Jessica, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation. So we met recently on a Zoom panel where we were both part of uh, a women in STEM. We were talking about women in STEM fields. And at some point during either the pre-panel discussion or possibly during the panel itself, I very vividly remember you saying that you would talk to anyone about dragonflies for as long as they were willing <laughs> to listen or something to that effect. And I remember instantly my brain going, ooh, I will take you up on that offer. So <laughs> Jessica, before we talk at length about dragonflies, which we are absolutely going to do, I first want to know a bit about your journey to dragonfly geekery. So how did you become uh, a scientist with a special interest in uh, the types of insects you have? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, often I look back on it and I, it seems like it was a series of of fortunate events that happened. I, I really didn't have any scientists in my family or in my family friends Um uh, but I spent a lot of time up in northern Ontario with my grandparents, and uh, I spent a lot of time swimming and kind of in the water. And one of my parents' friends happened to say one weekend, if you like being in the water so much, you should go into oceanography. And so that kind of, or marine biology, uh, ultimately is what I went to university for. And then when I was in university, uh, I started taking entomology you know, classes, and invertebrate zoology kind of got me in interested in entomology. And um, I didn't think that I would ever be fortunate enough, I think, to work on dragonflies because it just seemed so amazing. I kind of assumed that everything was already done. You know, like there was the, like they're attractive. They've been around forever. Everybody likes them. Probably all the research is solved and sorted. Um, so it was really uh, kind of a surprise to me when I uh, was applying to go to graduate school. I didn't apply to work on dragonflies and damselflies. I applied to do something very practical and to work on integrated pest management um, you know, save the, the crops and protect food security. Um, but then when I was in graduate school, uh, I met Mike May and he worked on dragonfly systematics or the evolution of dragonflies and damselflies. And, um, from them, from then on, I pretty much, uh, was all in cause he, he told me he laughed and he said, of course, there's so much left to be done. There's <laughs> so much work that needs to be done on odonates, which is the order to which dragonflies and damselflies belong. Um, and he really encouraged me to, to not to not think that way, <laughs> just to think of all the questions that haven't been answered yet. 
So I absolutely want to get on to talking about dragonflies with the time we have and damselflies. And interestingly, um, I know that I have a very strong picture of what a dragonfly looks like, and I think most people probably do. Um, but I actually wasn't a hundred percent sure what a damselfly was and had to look it up. So can you give us a quick hit on dragonflies versus damselflies? Sure. Um, so dragonflies and damselflies look very similar in some ways. They both have two pairs of wings, so four wings in total. Uh, but what's different is that dragonflies tend to have uh, a, a thicker abdomen than a damselfly. Um, damselflies tend to have very slender abdomens, although not all of them. Um, and in general, dragonflies tend to hold their wings out to the side when they're at rest. Um, and damselflies tend to hold their wings behind their back when they're at rest, although not all of them. So there's this kind of general impression that people have of those two groups, which are suborders. Zygoptera and Anisoptera. Zygoptera are the damselflies. Anisoptera are the dragonflies. Um, and then there's this third suborder called Anisozygoptera, which is found only in China, the Himalayas, and Japan. Um, it's actually a pretty species poor taxon. It has only um, three uh, species right now, um, and there was, I guess, maybe 15 or so that that were in the fossil record. Um, but this has a thick stocky body like a dragonfly, but then it has petiolate wings like a damselfly. Um, and where it's positioned in the phylogeny is we think it's sister to the dragonflies or just kind of like a fancy, um, <laughs> uh, you know, fancy version of a, of, an, of a dragonfly. So if there are as many different kinds of dragonflies as damselflies as there are mammals, my assumption is there's got to be a lot of diversity in this group. There is, and it's it's diversity in color, you know, it's diversity in size and shape, in habitat preferences, flowing water, still water, temporary water, um, in diversity in flight behavior, diversity in long distance flight, short distance flight, long distance migration. Uh, some damselflies, you know, fly 11 meters their whole life, and others, you know, some dragonflies are flying 11,000 kilometers uh, in their life. So there's really just a huge variety um, in many aspects of their life history strategy. There are some similarities across them. They're all visual predators. They're highly visual predators. Um, they're predators both in the juvenile stage, which develops in freshwater, um, and in the adult stage as well. I remember as a kid uh, getting dragonflies to land on my finger and being fascinated <laughs> by how colorful they are, and especially that kind of iridescent metallic color that a lot of dragonflies tend to have. Um, is that fairly common amongst the dragonfly families? Well, there are some groups that have this iridescence, and the iridescence often is a structural pigmentation. So what that means, a structural color is it's not true pigment, it's, um, you know, rugosities or bumps on the surface of the cuticle. And when light bounces off of it, our eyes perceive it as, as being a color. Um, and that's, it's, it's common in some damselflies, and it's common in a couple of groups of, of dragonflies. And what's neat is that you can actually sometimes see that color still preserved in fossils. Because in compression fossils, sometimes if those rugosities, if those bumps, um, were kind of preserved in the in the compression fossil. When light hits it, you similarly see the fossil appearing um, kind of metallic green, which is which is wild. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's very neat. But there's other. Co I mean, there's also um, you know the colors that are caused by you know pigments that are pigments in their epithelial cells, and those colors can appear brighter or darker as these pigments can move up and down in the epithelial cells. And then there's also a waxy coating that can coat the body that can give the body kind of a bluish color. So sometimes you get you get familiar with knowing a particular species like Erythema simplicicalis, 
um, is the Eastern Pond Hawk. And I memorized what it looked like as a graduate student. And it's green, green, green. Like if you look at it, it's very, very green. And then I was out with my advisor and there was a blue dragonfly that looked sort of similar in body type. And he said, oh, that's an erythemus, simplicicollis. And I'm like, I'm sorry, brother, but those are green. And he <laughs> said, like, no, actually, males get a waxy prunescence, uh, a waxy coating that makes them turn a blue color. So there's a lot of different ways that you can have color in dragonflies and damselflies. There are definitely a lot of very colorful dragonflies and damselflies. Do we have any understanding of where that color came from evolutionarily or what the why it evolved, why they evolved to be so colorful? Oh, that's such a good question. And the evolution of color um, is tied, of course, to the perception of color. Um, and there are a couple of groups. There's a group in um, in Utah, there's a group in, in Japan uh, that have really been focused on understanding the evolution of opsin pigments in the in the eyes which are, you know, what allows these dragonflies to be able to perceive color. Um, but it's interesting, like, what, what the drivers are for the diversity of color. Um, I think people don't have an answer to that yet. I mean, there's some hypotheses. Certainly color um, is associated with signaling. Color is associated with speciation. Color um, can, can do a lot of things. Color can also affect thermoregulation because... Uh, darker colors absorb more heat, um, and lighter colors, there's actually some dragonflies that have a waxy coating that makes the abdomen, um, white, uh, which allows them to kind of reflect heat off of their body, uh, during the hottest parts of the summer days. Um, so, you know, color is associated not just with speciation, um, not just with signaling, but also with, you know, like I said, um, kind of temperature regulation. Uh, and it also can be good for crypsis. So part of why we think that color can the pigments of color can migrate um, up and down in these epithelial cells of dragonflies is in part to allow them to appear darker and perhaps less visible um, to birds frogs things like that that are kind of jumping up to try to try to eat them yeah, it's one of the things that I was sort of thinking through when I was looking at pictures of dragonflies um, a few days ago, is trying to understand a little bit of why they're so colorful. Because in some cases, uh, color can be used as camouflage. In some cases, it it can be used to signal I am poisonous. Um, but I, you know, I, I would assume that being that colorful against a kind of more muted sky might make you easier to find and eat. But they are pretty agile, so I don't know. Yeah, they're very, I mean, one of the things they're great at is, is maneuverability. And that's kind of their claim to fame in terms of their flight behavior. Um, so that is a, a good way that they can avoid uh, predators. But I mean, the signaling, I mean, often the the patterns that you see on the wings of dragonflies and damselflies are the signal to other male signaling males or male signaling females. Um, and that we I think we understand a little bit better. And there are some people that think that temperature regulation also affects the, the patterns that you see on the wings. Um, but in terms of why there's a pink dragonfly, why there's a blue dragonfly, why there's three or four different types of yellow dragonflies, I think it's not well known, the reason behind it. So definitely one of those open questions, still still <laughs> lots to explore. Yeah, um, see, he was right. <laughs> we were talking to do. Absolutely. We were ta- you were talking a little bit about how dragonflies are known as agile flyers, and I think that's definitely one of their uh, huge claims to fame. I can't think of something I was more fascinated in as a kid than watching dragonflies just hover in midair, sort of the experience of turning around and just seeing a dragonfly behind you just like suspended. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite an amazing agility they have. Yeah, and they're, I mean, they're, they're wings 
really vary um, from species to species, genus to genus, family to family. Um, and in part, that's because different flight requirements um, have led selection to act on wing venation patterns, on wing shape, um, on camber, and on um, there are these the aspects of the wing actually really strongly influence aerodynamics. And so they've been selected to have particular vein patterns, particular wing shapes for particular styles of flight. Not everything does long distance flight. Not everything is doing repeated takeoff and landing. Not everything is maneuvering in and amongst vegetation. You know, this varies from species to species, taxon to taxon. And so we see kind of like these correlated um uh, you know, patterns in certain styles of flight like that. So w- things that are hovering, you're staying in one spot, kind of hovering. Um, not all of the dragonflies are known to do that very often, uh, but the ones that do do that have particular wing vein patterns and wing shape. That's interesting. Um, that leads me to wonder, given what you said about how there's some dragonflies that only ever, that go, have like very, very small territories. Uh, they don't fly very far in their entire life, where there's others that have very large migratory patterns. Um, my, I'd sort of assume that all dragonflies and damselflies would probably fly kind of in the same way, but it, now that I'm sort of thinking about that in terms of migratory patterns, I, I'm not actually sure about that anymore. So maybe you can shed some some light on that for me. Are there like different varieties and different variations in the way that those different dragonflies have evolved to fly? I'm assuming you need a, a little bit of a, a different technique if you're going to go across an ocean than you do if you're just going across someone's backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the dragonflies that fly long distance style flight, they tend to have um, slightly larger surface areas, maybe for decreased energy expenditure, um, cause they're doing kind of gliding style flight, often passively, although, you know, with some flapping. Um, and, uh, dragonflies that are going to be maneuvering in and amongst vegetation, um, they tend to have wings that allow for a lot of twisting and turning around this central point in the wing, which is called the notice. Um, and there's a material called resolin, which is like a flexible, almost kind of spongy material that is deposited at different key points in the wing that allows kind of bending and twisting. Um, and so it's possible that the, those pat, the pattern of resolin kind of across, um, wings of different species might vary, although it's time, it's been time consuming. Uh, sci- there are some scientists that have been working on trying to like make maps of what, what, where resolin is deposited in wings uh, across species, but it is very time consuming. Um, to do so I think we don't really know the variation of that but you can imagine like if you if you're perched on the ground um the 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 what you would need to do to reach lift to be able to to maintain lift and and to take off um to go into the sky to go into the air column that's going to be slightly different from a dragonfly that's taking off from a twig that's already 15 feet in the air um, there are some dragonflies uh, that perch only on the ground. So they have a different flight requirement in terms of their their takeoff and landing um, than you might expect for something that's perching on vegetation. Um, and similarly, some of these dragonflies, which we call flyers, they're kind of grouped into these two kind of coarse piles, I guess, <laughs> flyers and perchers. Um, perchers spending a lot of time perched on vegetation or on the ground. But the dragonflies that we call flyers that are doing, you know, basically on the wing from morning until night, um, they really not need, they don't really need to have wings that are well designed for takeoff and landing. They need to have wings that are well designed for gliding and for, for decreasing energy expenditure for long periods of, of time in the air. 
it just is fascinating to me um, <laughs> to start thinking about these creatures that are so everyday in a, in a very different way. Um, I definitely want to talk about the life cycle of dragonflies and damselflies, and in, in particular, but I want to talk about the general life cycle. But we have a very time-honored tradition here at Science for the People in talking about strange penises. Um, and in researching, uh, in order to, uh, talk with you today, I did discover something, another thing I didn't know. This is a whole podcast about things I didn't know is that dragonflies have two penises. I did not know that. Yeah, it's actually remarkable. They have a penis at the tip of their abdomen and then a secondary penis at the base of their abdomen. And that secondary penis consists of basically like a sperm pump. So they take the, the, the sperm from the primary penis and it gets ejaculated into the secondary penis. And then it's kind of stored there in this structure. It's called the vesica spermalis. Um, and then that sperm pump basically, uh, you know, uh, transfers the sperm to the female, um, at the time when, uh, when, it, when sperm transfer is going to occur. And the reason why I say at the time is because it doesn't happen right away. So they ejaculate sperm from the primary penis, put it into the secondary penis. And then that secondary penis also has these hooks on it. Sometimes they look almost like a spoon. Um, and males will use that to actually scrape out the previous male sperm from inside the female's sperm storage organs. So females can mate multiple times and they have these, these organs in their body that are for long-term and short-term storage called the spermatheca and the bursa copulatrix. And basically, um, they can keep sperm alive for some period of time. But males want to ensure paternity presumably. So there's been selection for them to have these at these kind of, um, I guess, cuticular expansions or expansions of their cuticle of their skin um, on the secondary penis to basically act as a spoon or as a displacement tool <laughs> to scrape out the previous male sperm before they deliver their precious sperm to the female. Always, always got to try and prize your own, uh, your own sperm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how long do females store the sperm? You mentioned both short term and long term storage. Yeah, and we don't really understand um, exactly the difference between the two organs. Um, and whether or not they're short term, how those those bound how she chooses whether to put sperm into the spermatheca or the bursa copulatrix, we don't really understand. Um, females are when they're in the adult stage, are really only out for a short window of time. So it's not like the sperm storage of, of termites, for example, which is, you know, uh, over a decade. This is sperm storage just, um, you know, over a couple of months um, that she's doing the sperm storage. All right. So she's got some sperm. Um, what happens next with the female? I'm assuming there are eggs laid at some point, an amount of them? Yeah, and, and the number of eggs that she lays slightly varies from taxon to taxon. Um, but basically, she, when it's time for her to lay the eggs, the eggs pass down the oviduct, um, and they pass, you know, and sperm is added from either the, either the bursa copulatrix or the, or the spermatheca. Um, there's little holes in the egg, micropiles. The sperm enters through there, um, and then that, that fertilized egg is what either gets put into plant material um, or deposited on the surface of the water. And then it kind of floats down in the air column, um, <laughs> in the water column, rather, not in the air, in the water column, and, and hopefully it doesn't get eaten by a frog or a fish, um, and that egg is able to hatch. So now we've got uh, a bunch of larvae after the egg has hatched. And my understanding is it's not just the dragonflies and damselflies that are predators, but also uh, the 
um, larvae are actually effectively meat eaters when it comes to insects. Yeah, they'll eat each other uh, commonly. Um, they'll eat other insects. There's lots of insects that have freshwater um, stages. But then they also, in the juvenile stage, can take vertebrate predators, uh, vertebrate prey. So they can take um, small minnows. They can take frogs, uh, you know, usually the tadpole stage. Um, and so, there. I mean, a lot of people for, for, you know, humans have for the longest time wanted to get rid of the things that we don't like, <laughs> which includes mosquitoes, because mosquitoes uh, vector many illnesses that are, you know, fatal to humans like malaria um, or, you know, otherwise, you know, deleterious, dengue or what have you. Uh, dragonflies and damselflies do a great job at eating mosquitoes. So people have wondered, oh, could we use these as kind of a natural biological control? You know, release dragonflies and damselflies from water, um, have them eat all of the mosquitoes, and we'd have bingo bongo. That would be done. <laughs> Solved. Uh, but they just have had a hard time rearing dragonflies and damselflies in large enough numbers um, that would really make it effective. So but that's kind of the dream, is that they could eat all the mosquitoes. Um, in this juvenile stage, because they eat mosquitoes as adults and as juveniles. Um, but if they could get rid of them at the, at the source, you know, before any adult mosquitoes emerge, that would be terrific. I am on board with that plan if someone can make it, make it work. Mosquitoes, <laughs> I think, are one of the few species where most of us would be happy for them to go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they'll eat all flies, really. I mean, so although, you know, Flies have their part too, and they're an important part in the ecosystem. No one really wants to save the maggots, right? Uh, but of course, <laughs> I guess eventually uh, that'll be a, a question for the ages. Do we save flies? Like if if there was only one population of flies left, uh, one population of mosquitoes, of culex left on Earth, do we save it or do we not? That's a question. I feel like I'm cool with flies. I mean, obviously, nobody likes a big pile of maggots anywhere near your your space, right? Maggots over <laughs> there, things. Um, I'm 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 cool with flies. Flies and me can coexist. Uh, as yeah. having grown up in a place with lots of mosquitoes, and if you've spent some time in various parts of Ontario, I'm sure you've got lots of experience with mosquitoes too. <laughs> and now, having moved to the UK and live in a place where there basically are no mosquitoes, I will take no mosquitoes any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, I would like, I think the nuisance factor is huge, especially in, in Canada or when I've been in the Arctic and Sweden or, or Norway, it's, you open your mouth and you're just full, it's, it's just full of them. You're just full of them. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't control that shiver that went up my spine there yeah. when you said that. <laughs> um, so they go through a larvae stage. Where and when and how do they go from that sort of larvae stage to the dragonflies and damselflies we think of that can land on our fingers? So they have a, they actually are growing while they're underwater. Um, some live underwater as juveniles for five years. Some live for four or six weeks. You know, it really depends on the species. It's a huge amount of variation, in part because of different life history strategies. So Pantella, uh, Flavescens is a dragonfly that migrates, it's a long distance migrant, and it often takes advantage of temporary or transient bodies of water that accumulate after heavy rains. So um, as you might as you might predict, it actually has a pretty short development time because those are ephemeral water sources. So it develops in, you know, four to six weeks. But regardless of whether it's a four to six weeks development time or a five year development time, it's basically the same steps that are that are being taken. So individuals hatch from an egg 
and to the, what's called the first instar. And each, um, in each subsequent, um, molting to a larger body size is a molting to the next instar. So they, these dragonflies and damselflies consume food, um, try and avoid predators, poop, um, and rest, I guess, at times. Um, and then they molt to the next, uh, instar. And they do this a series of times, um, until it's time to emerge. And that's when they're in their last stadium. Um, sometimes these are called stadia. It's another way that to, to call them instead of instars. And basically, um, by the time they're in their last stadium or their last instar, their wings are fully developed and they're just crunched up and folded up inside of what's called, um, a pad, the, the wing pads. Um, which are part of uh, the the body of of the nymph or larva. So then the nymph or larva will crawl up, emerge in vegetation, um, and then will cling to it quite firmly. And then the adult basically pulls itself out of a crack that forms um, on the back, on the dorsum, um, and it pulls its body out of the shed larval skin. And when it does so, um, basically, its gut lining, its trachea lining gets ripped out inside out. Um, the adult kind of crawls to a safe spot and then has to wait a period of time as its body solidifies and hardens up. Um, in the beginning, when they first emerge, they're very floppy and flimsy, uh, very vulnerable to injury and predation. Um, and so sometimes you can find these shed skins, this last skin, it's called an exuvia, still attached to emergent vegetation at the water. And you might sometimes see these kind of white, uh, it almost looks like little white fine strings sticking out the back of the exuvia. And that's actually the trachea, which is what their breathing tubes uh, that have been ripped. That's the lining of it that's been ripped out inside out. Like if you pulled the sock off and it was now inside out, kind of still clinging uh, to the hamper, that's what it is. Oh, wow. That sounds traumatic. <laughs> Well, that's the way the insects do it. <laughs> oh my yep. gosh. Um, I was in order to research a little bit for uh, this interview today, I was watching one of your talks and there was a comment you made about um, people, uh, basically that there's a reasonable amount known about dragonflies, but the damselflies were, and I think this was the quote, just a mess. Um, so I'm interested to understand and unpack a little bit about what you meant by that. Well, um, I think that it's not that the damselflies inherently are a mess. I think we just have a lot more work left to do to resolve their, their relationships. So um, we use genetics, we use DNA, uh, we use morphology or the appearance of these insects um, to try and collect data about similarities and differences. And we compile those data together in these evolutionary analyses that tells us something about the number of groups we have and how we think those groups are related to each other. And when we've tried to do this for damselflies um, with molecular data, with DNA, um, it seems like uh, it's absolute chaos. And what that means is that <laughs> in the past, people used just the phenotype, just the appearance, just the morphology to describe how damselflies were related to each other. And then when we started using molecular data, a lot of the molecular data did not agree with what the morphology had told us before. Oh, interesting. And so there were a bunch of surprises. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, that happens from time to time. That happens across, you know, groups as we do this. You know, it's happened in plants, it's happened in dragonflies even. But I think it just seems like it's been a bit of an extreme example of discordance between morphology and molecules for damselflies. So 
Um, what that means is that, um, you know, as the taxon- taxonomy gets simplified, as people continue to work on this, it will get resolved. It just will take a bit of time. <laughs> Interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this is around trying to figure out sort of the tree of life structure of w- where they're associated in those trees and what they're more closely related to and what they're kind of farther apart from. Yeah, we, we sometimes want to really dial down to that. We want to know how individual species are related to each other, or different genera, or different families. And sometimes that can be really useful just for the point of knowing what the tree of life is. But sometimes that can be really useful because knowing those relationships helps us understand better um, the evolution of particular traits, like the evolution of a certain style of flight, the evolution of a certain way of laying eggs, the evolution of a particular color pattern or what have you. Uh, we really need to have a good phylogeny or a good evolutionary history to really understand some of those questions. And I assume that's because obviously there are no time machines and we cannot actually go back in time to check where those things came from. And so we try and use some of those connections to draw reasonable conclusions. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We're using these phylogenies so that we can infer, you know, the evolution of particular traits um, using models. And um, we can use certain types of analyses that allow us to reconstruct what we think an ancestral trait might have been um, under given conditions that you input ahead of time. <laughs> so one of the things that I don't know a ton about the kind of evolutionary history of dragonflies and damselflies, but I did an episode years and years and years ago about kind of the Earth's history and in particular that talked about the kind of um, atmospheric chemistry of the Earth over time. And of course, when you look at that, you get to that point in time uh, where the Earth was highly oxygenated and that led to these kind of almost famously huge dragonflies. Um, and I know that even today, there's uh, quite a variety of sizes in dragonflies in addition to colors. Um, what are some of the largest dragonflies we have today still? Ah, that's a good question. I guess it depends on if you mean uh, weight or wingspan. Um, certainly the ones from the Carboniferous, which are not really modern dragonflies. They're proto-odonates, as we call them, griffinflies. Um those were large in wingspan, and maybe they were heavy too, I don't know. Today, we have a dragonfly called Pedalura gigantea, uh, and it's found in Australia, and it, I think, has the heaviest mass. Um, I've seen them flying, they almost look like a sparrow flying by. It's oh, really wow. Remarkable. And they're nymphs, their they're juvenile stage is pretty huge honk in size too. Um, but for for wingspan, uh, they wouldn't be the largest. I think the largest wingspan is Megaloprapus carulatus which is a damselfly that uh, lives from Mexico down to Peru. Um, and it actually is a specialist. It, it lays its, the females lay their eggs in tree holes, which are basically, you know, holes in, in fallen uh, uh, logs and what have you, or bits of palm fronds or whatever that collect water. Um, and they lay their eggs in that standing water. And they're specialists uh, that eat spiders. So they actually hover in front of spider webs and pick spiders off. Uh, so they have a pretty big wingspan and they have very long, very, very, very narrow, um, abdomens because they're, they're laying their eggs in this, in this unique habitat that is called a phytotelm, um, or a, a container, a water container. Very cool. Um, mm. I could keep talking about 
I have many, many more questions that we are absolutely not going to get to about dragonflies, which is very <laughs> sad. But there's a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about briefly. Um, one of them is uh, you're a curator at a natural history museum. And I would love to know what that job title includes. What does what 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 does one do when they curate invertebrate zoology at a natural history museum? Uh, well, you know, it's a terrific job. First of all, I would say everyone should do it. Um, and basically what you're, what you're responsible for is, is something sort of similar to if, if you could picture what a professor would do at a university where you have a certain portion of your time that's spent doing research, basic research. Um, but then at a university, you would also do teaching and service. And by contrast, at a museum, um, instead of doing teaching and service, uh, usually what you're doing is collections work, um, and service. And for collections, what that means is we're responsible for, you know, maintaining um, and growing the collection. Uh, we have 23 million uh, insect specimens at the American Museum of Natural History, um, and I'm responsible for the basal hexapods and non-hola metabolous insects, which are the insects that have incomplete metamorphosis, so they don't have a pupal stage. It includes things like dragonflies and damselflies and termites and cockroaches. And so we work to try and maintain the collections we have, we work with museum specialists, like I work with Ruth Salas, um, who's the museum specialist uh, that's responsible for non-hola metabolism insects. I work with her to arrange loans. People borrow specimens when they're working on particular uh, revisionary works or, or different projects. They actually can, just like you would take out a book from a library, you can borrow a specimen from a museum. Um, and that has to be done in a very um, organized fashion. Um, and then we also work to maintain the collections by making sure that specimens and alcohol have enough alcohol and et cetera. Um, but then another really big part is growing the collection because, um, you know, there's such value. It's actually, there's, you couldn't put really, um, a, a big enough dollar amount on how, what the value is of a museum collection because these are snapshots of, of geographic ranges and of distributions and of all sorts of genetic and, and morphological variation uh, that we that we have. You know, these are these are snapshots of collecting events that have taken place over the last hundred and fifty years. Um, and we want to continue that because these are these are baseline data in a in a world that's changing with climate change, um, in a world that's changing with habitat change and habitat and land use change. This is really important um, important work. So that's a big part of what you do. Um, and then we also have a graduate school at the American Museum of Natural History called the Richard Gilder Graduate School. So we have graduate students just as you would at a university uh, that you mentor as they work towards their PhDs. My assumption is, like with most parts of any kind of museum or gallery, is that what the public sees in the public galleries is tends to be a fairly small fraction of the potentially very large collection that's kind of behind the scenes. Is that true as well when we're talking about a natural history museum? Absolutely. So in our museum, the first four floors are open to the public, but then there's four additional floors um, which house the collections. Um, the majority of the collections are, are there very, 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 a tiny, tiny soupçon. Uh, it's down, uh, in the public area. And that's also where all the research happens. Everyone's research labs are there, instrumentation facilities, genomic centers. They're all up, um, in these upper floors. Um, and you would find this at the Smithsonian. You find this at the Chicago Field Museum. You find this at the California Academy of Sciences. Um, they're all very similar where there's a science section. Uh, where the research is happening, and then scientists can collaborate with people in exhibits um, 
to, to highlight particular collections or to incorporate um, aspects of the collection into exhibits that are designed for, for public. I, I'm assuming as well that you, um, in addition to having uh, your lab and other people's labs based in those spaces, that I'm, my assumption as well is that other scientists who are interested in looking at those collections for their own research can probably go and book time or uh, come and visit to see some of those collections as well that are, are not as public as some of the, the public gallery ones? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are actually, there's grants that you can apply for that will actually fund you to come um, and they're called collections grants. Um, we haven't been doing that since the pandemic, of course, but, um, you know, people routinely, uh, come to visit, especially if you want to work on a, on a taxonomic groups and you want to look at their type material, which is the type material usually are the material, um, on which the species was, was described. Um, we often don't loan types. We often don't send types, uh, you know, across the ocean or, uh, you know, through the mail. Uh, then, you know, people usually then in that case do need to come um, to the museum, especially also if you're planning to look at a whole series. Uh, so you need to look at 300 specimens. I mean, that would be unlikely that someone would, would mail those. That would be something more where someone would arrange a visit to come and stay for a week and, and get the data that they needed. Yeah, definitely. At some point, it becomes more economical and just more logistically sound for a person to come to the collection rather than bits <laughs> of the collection to be sent to a person, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're just about out of time, but I also wanted to talk to you about something that I know is dear to you and uh, is also something that I'm a big advocate for, and that is increased diversity in STEM. It was something that, that we talked about in a panel that we were on together, and I know that you are very much active in trying to promote diversity diversity in particular in entomology. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the issues there and also some of what you're trying to do to combat it. Well, what we know from um, what's been found in the literature and some work that uh, colleagues and I published last year is that the numbers of people that are um, getting either PhDs in entomology, masters in entomology, or who are paid professionals who would consider themselves to be professional entomologists the demographics of those folks it doesn't reflect what we would expect to find based on human demographics. And um, when you speak to people, um, again, this is work that we actually have ongoing. Uh, so we're doing a survey uh, right now, speaking with people to get an, an assessment of culture. Um, but when you speak with people, you get the impression, just as what we discussed um, on the panel that you and I were on, you know, that there is some retention issue that has to do with a culture change that needs to happen. Um, so what we've been working to do is to try and take a multi-pronged approach to diversify entomology. I don't think there's one answer to really increase the numbers of people of color, increase the numbers of LGBTQ2IS, um, A people. We need to do multiple things. <laughs> there's no one, one band-aid. Um, so we've been working with a group that we started last year called the Entomologists of Color Collective. Um, and this group works to recruit students by paying for free memberships to entomological societies, to any entomological society in the world. We have a website, entopoc.org, and students can go there, and there are forms um, for basically any entomology uh, association that we could think of. And if you don't see the one that you like, you can just let us know. And we'll pay for up to three memberships um, for a student. Uh, and then we highlight those students as part of a diversity um, visibility campaign on our social media. And that really, the goal of that is to really kind of change people's idea 
of what a scientist is when they picture what a scientist is. And it also is great for networking and allowing these students to get some, you know, visibility and for people to contact them about different projects. Um, and then for retention, we've been working to try and um, figure out ways that we can liaise with entomology departments. Um, and part of the survey that we're undertaking right now is to actually get at what are some of the issues in particular departments for admitting students, getting a diversity of students actually into our programs, um, training mentors so that mentors who are working with a diversity of students have the, the tools that they need so that they can be effective mentors. Um, those are part of the retention campaign. And then ultimately, there are systemic barriers that might prevent people from participating. These could include things that are going to be harder to, to change, like access to green space and what have you. Um, but it also is, you know, there are fundamental things in our university systems and in our scientific societies that we can change um, to try and make things, um, I guess, more equitable um, and to really try and remove some of the barriers to participation that we see. Um, and these things are, you know, these things kind of can be additive. You know, what might be a barrier to one person if another person has these intersectional identities, it might be, um, you know, a further burden. Uh, so we really want to try and take a holistic approach and, and really understand that um, the, you know, as they say, you know, when we help the people who are most marginalized in our community, um, probably everybody will benefit. <laughs> you know, it's something that will that will benefit us all. Absolutely. And it's definitely something that, like you said, there is no simple fix. There's no easy button. There's a lot of large and small things that need to be done on a regular basis. I know um, one of the things that is the most challenging for us in doing this podcast in tackling diversity is just an awareness of it. We're constantly trying to find more people. Um, and it's discouragingly hard sometimes, and it shouldn't be. Right, right. Well, this is one of the things that we really advocated, or, you know, what we've been advocating through NTPSC really, is to have, we should all be doing assessments, you know, like departments should be doing assessments, uh, universities should be doing assessments, scientific societies should be doing assessments, to figure out who we are, um, who's a member of, of, of entomology, like who, who are the entomologists? Um, what do they look like? What are they, what's their story? Um, and then once we have those assessments, we could really start making programming, um, making events, making building conferences around the needs of different types of people. Um, and I think that ultimately one of the things I hope will happen is that people will, um, you know, who's invited for seminar series will be, will, won't even be a conversation, right? Because there'll be a wealth of, of people uh, that are known that are highlighted, that are able to participate fully, so you know them. So you know who to ask, because there's lots of different types of people uh, that would come to mind immediately uh, when you were thinking of organizing a symposium or, or what have you. Um, so that's a hopeful hope for the future. Yeah, it's definitely, having after having done this podcast now for 10 years, it is getting better. Um, it's just not getting better as fast as I think we all <laughs> want it to. Yeah, yeah. Jessica, it's been lovely to have you. I know our time is up for today. Um, really interesting conversation. And I learned so much about dragonflies and damselflies, both in preparing <laughs> for this discussion and in talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully you get to go out this summer and you get to see some of the mating I was talking about. They'll be together for 20 minutes or so. 
And the majority of that time is the sperm displacement. So now that you know that that's what's happening, um, you can watch it in action. <laughs> I'm going to look for it. Absolutely. It will happen. And if you want to learn more about Jessica Ware, her research, or entopoc.org, we will, as always, have links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find in the podcast notes on your podcatcher of choice or at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Music